EPC Power manufactures self-developed energy storage smart inverters made in their American factories with gigawatt-level capacity. EPC Power is headquartered in San Diego County, California, and recently opened an engineering and sales location in Helsinki, Finland, to support the growing global demand. Visit epcpower.com energygang to learn more about the utility scale and CNI product lines, and schedule a call to learn how they can help you power your energy storage projects. EPC Power. Excellence in power conversion. Hello and welcome to The Energy Gang, a discussion show about the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Ed Crooks. We've got a show for you today that's themed around stories on investment and finance, how are investors driving the energy transition, and how is a changing climate also changing the world of investment. I'm very pleased to welcome, for the first time on the show, a guest who deals with these issues all the time in his day job. He's Shani Matthew. He's a Vice President in Sustainable Investing and Net Zero Research at Lazard Asset Management, which is one of the world's leading investment management companies. Hello, Shani. Thanks very much for joining us. Hi, Ed. Thanks for having me on. And I'm also very pleased to welcome back Amy Myers-Jaffe, who's Managing Director of the Climate Policy Lab at the Fletcher School at Tufts University. Hello, Amy. How have you been since we saw you last? Busy with the more geopolitical topics, with the conflict in Europe and natural gas prices and Ukraine and Russia. It's great to have you back. Thanks very much for joining us. Before we get stuck into our first subject, Shana, I think it'd be helpful for our listeners if you told us a bit about yourself. Can you explain what is it that you do at Lazard and what was the career journey that led you there? Absolutely. So my path is one that's a little bit windy. Currently, as you mentioned, I sit as a vice president in sustainable investing and net zero research at Lazard Asset Management, uh, which is a traditional asset manager that invests across equity and fixed income. My job is to conduct fundamental bottom-up analysis on individual stocks, uh, as well as portfolios to understand the climate-related risks and opportunities that present themselves in, in the markets. Basically, trying to understand as the world transitions as a result of climate change, what does that mean for actual investment theses? And you know, how do we incorporate that into our investment process? My background is predominantly across uh, financial services and investment management. It's been you know all over in a few different roles, but climate personally became a passion of mine when I was in undergraduate studies in 2014, when the release of the IPCC AR5 report came out. Uh, you know, I was profoundly struck by how a lot of the worst impacts of climate change would impact some of the most vulnerable countries. I'm personally a son to two immigrants from India. So th- this is something that really hit home and decided that I really wanted to focus on that issue with my career at some point. So, you know, I consumed as much as I could, personally self-taught and self-networked quite a bit, uh, which allowed me to eventually participate with a few climate tech accelerators, did a climate tech fellowship. I've written about climate and investing. Things of all that nature have finally led me to an opportunity at Lazard where I could connect that investment skill set with the personal interest in climate change. So that's what I'm doing full time now. That's uh, fascinating. So were you hired into a role where they said, hey, we want you to focus on climate and the energy transition? Or did you get kind of hired into a generous role and you said to them, hey, look, this is really important. This is something we've got to be thinking about. It's actually, yeah, it was specifically tailored around this. I mean, so when we think about investment management, as for we'll tie into some of these uh, trends going on in the capital markets, uh, Lazard Asset Management became a signatory to the Net Zero Asset Managers Initiative. And one of the, the purposes of bringing me on was, you know, they, they recognize and understand that climate change is such a broad topic with, you know, incredible amount of nuance when, when you look at different respective sectors or countries or geographies. And they wanted someone that could sit along inside investment analysts and appreciate all the different sustainability and climate change considerations, but pair that along with our fundamental investment analysis. So my job was to come in and partner with our analysts to help appreciate the different considerations that they may not be aware of, try to work together to partner to see if that 
impact how we think about names or sectors in general. Oh, and by the way, just need to make clear that any views that I express on the pod are, are those of my own uh, and not representative of Lazard or Lazard Asset Management. So first of all, I want to talk about, you just mentioned, Shanu, the Net Zero Asset Managers Initiative, which is one of many initiatives now that are bringing together investors to try and drive that transition towards lower carbon energy. There is this staggering amount of money that's supposedly aligned with achieving the goals of the Paris Climate Agreement. The Net Zero Asset Managers Initiative is part of something broader umbrella organization called the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero. Institutions that have signed up for that have a total of $130 trillion under management. Absolutely mind-blowing number, um, just for reference. It's not exact comparison because it's kind of stocks and flows and so on. So you shouldn't necessarily put too much weight on this, but still it's a kind of revealing thing. These assets under management, $130 trillion. Total global GDP last year was $95 trillion. Just gives you an idea of the scale of things. There's an interesting example, I think, of what that might mean in practice we had from State Street, not a big investment management company, signed up to a lot of these principles and initiatives about getting to net zero. Its chief executive said last week that it expected all of the companies in the major indices in the US, Canada, Europe, etc., to comply with the requirements of the TCFD, the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures. We'll get into the detail, I think, of that in a moment of what the TCFD actually is and what it does. But I think the bigger point is just to say that investors are playing a hugely significant role now in decarbonization. Sometimes I think arguably they're playing a more important role than governments. And I think as a result of that, it's really important to investigate what they're doing. And I think it's a really great subject for us to be discussing today. Amy, come to you first on this and just to deal with that point about the TCFD and and what that is and how that's significant that you're getting investors like State Street and others calling for companies to use that and comply with their standards. What exactly is that initiative doing? Well, you know, let me just remind you that at the last G7 ministerial, they said, you know, our companies and the economy need to be complying with the TCFD in thinking about disclosures. So TCFD was a task force, just as it's named. Uh, It involved senior people and uh, people with the background like uh, Shanu, who came together from companies, from uh, financial institutions. It was chaired by Michael Bloomberg. And also Mark Carney, right? Wasn't it? Wasn't he yeah, also Yeah, Mark involved? Carney was, was, was uh, from, from the UK, was uh, uh, at the time central banker. So big initiative. And the idea was to create sort of a roadmap or a framework for public companies so they could integrate climate risk reporting you know, into the regular reporting process that corporations have to make. And they wanted transparency. And and one of the big primary takeaways was that companies should do a scenario analysis exercise um, so that they could inform themselves as to the uncertainties they face and the opportunities they might be able to tap. And the idea was it would help companies make better decisions about capital allocation and strategic planning. And, And I've seen in my experience... Um, because actually one of the things I, I do in my sort of day job, side job, is actually train companies how to use the TCFD scenario process. And when it's done well, uh, sometimes you get companies making very impactful decisions about reorienting capital allocation and finding new opportunities 
and it's an important thing because, you know, the economy is structurally changing as we move forward with climate change and the energy transition. And TCFD has these steps, not only for how do you assess your risk, but then also what should you do to disclose it and whose responsibility it is to disclose it. And to be clear, then, when companies are supposed to be talking about climate risk, this is what both, is it sort of the physical impacts of climate change on their business? Or is it things like, you know, suppose energy policy changes and demand shifts away from fossil fuels, fossil fuels become more expensive because of carbon prices going up or whatever it might be, what effect that has on the business? Is it is it both of those things? Or what actually do they have to talk about? No, it is. And one of the interesting things, I mean, I one time I was working with a Fortune 500 company that had a very forward-looking sort of carbon strategy. They had integrated the carbon price into their strategic planning. They had like a glide path set up or a roadmap for how they were going to decarbonize their operations and their products. And I went in there, we're doing the training. And as we're getting prepared, I said, well, let's have, you know, we're going to have the following session on physical risk for your manufacturing plants globally and your personnel globally. And there's this dead silence. Because here's this company's, you know, really prepared for the energy transition and they're feeling like they don't really need to do this, but, you know, it's sort of a formal thing that they have to say when they're disclosing that they've done scenarios, so they want to do scenarios. And all of a sudden, we realize that this is a gap in their planning, that they have not thought about what is the climate-specific risk in places. That can be heat which makes it hard for workers. It could be pandemic, which they hadn't looked at. This is pre-COVID. It can be flooding to facilities, which again, they hadn't looked at. So the physical risk is as important if you're an investor or shareholder to a company. Obviously, shareholders are very concerned about companies being positioned to adjust to the energy transition, to be understanding how carbon pricing might affect uh, supply chains and costs. But also the physical risk question is a big one. So, Shanu, how do you think about this then? So your firm's got, I think it's about $250 billion, $270 billion of assets under management. You, as you said, in your kind of daily life, you are thinking about uh, making decisions on investment strategies and on individual companies and are these good companies to invest in or not. How do these kind of considerations about climate risk, alignment with net zero, come into the decisions that you're making? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just to build upon what what Amy was just speaking about, I mean, you see these considerations factor in different ways in different markets. So whether it's on the physical risk side or transition risk side, which is a, is a subject to regulatory considerations or changes in legal markets as a result of climate change, or the opportunity side, right, from technology breakthroughs or changing customer preferences, the one thing that's very clear is that the impacts of climate change or the opportunities from climate change are not equally distributed. And that's really important as investors because you want to ideally defensively position your portfolio so that you're not on the wrong side uh, of catching any of these trends. And then also maybe potentially can take advantage of market dislocations or opportunities on the opportunity side. So when we look at these companies, I mean, fundamentally, like you have to rely a little bit on what they're reporting in terms of the risk and opportunity reporting, but you want to see a company that's forward thinking about these changes and how it's impacting their markets and whether they're taking advantage of certain secular tailwinds uh, in their respective sectors. So ultimately, it's trying to gauge you know, who stands to win or lose share as a result of this, or is there any scarcity created as a result of some of these changes? And can you take advantage of that as an investor? And as I was saying, Lazard and a number of other big companies have signed up for a lot of these initiatives. 
Net Zero Asset Managers initiative being probably the biggest. What difference do these initiatives actually make to your decision making? Do you kind of, again, as I say, when you're making those decisions, very kind of concrete, practical decisions about we put our dollars here and we don't put them there. To what extent are you thinking, well, hey, because we're in this initiative, this is a particular decision that we ought to be taking? Yeah, perhaps I take a step back just to talk about what being a signatory means or what the commitment means. And so in general, if you're a signatory to the initiative that we're talking about here, which is the Net Zero Asset Managers Initiative, you pledge a certain percentage of your AUM today that will be managed in accordance with Net Zero principles, which roughly means that you will half the greenhouse gas emissions of that portfolio by 50% by 2030 and zero by 2050. Every five years, you increase or ratchet up the percentage of AUM that you pledge. And so what this means from a portfolio management standpoint is that you have to set and report on your emissions baseline and where your companies are at, and then manage that down towards a trajectory that's consistent with our goals of broader the Paris Agreement. And so what that does when you look at individual companies or when you hold names, if you have names that have to reduce their emissions footprint by dramatic amounts and have not had a history of doing so, you may reconsider owning that in your portfolios. Um, Alternatively, what that also does is may suggest to you as an investor that a lot needs to change about the underlying business if emissions are trending in the wrong direction. If I pledge to this initiative and a company needs to cut their greenhouse gas emissions by 50% and they've gone up the last three years, that might raise my eyebrows in terms of, are they going to see increased costs as a result of that transition? Are they going to have to shift their capital allocation priorities? And so even regardless of your opinion on whether you think the transition to net zero is happening quickly or not, those secondary impacts in terms of changes or impacts of the business model and capital allocation strategy do impact your investment thesis, regardless of which way you're looking at it. And so that's the areas that we're trying to do. And then I I know we're going to speak a little bit to the engagement standpoint of it, but another member of being a signatory to these initiatives is, is using your position as a shareholder to engage with companies to accelerate or be a catalyst to these efforts. And that involves setting robust targets in place, having uh, appropriate measurement, oversight. You know, you want oversight over these issues as well. And then you know, over time, you want to manage towards those. And then you can ideally use your position as an influential shareholder to vote against management if you don't think they're acting quickly enough, or you know, ultimately divest if you don't think that they'll be in line with the net zero trajectory. Was just about to ask about that. So a lot of it then is not about necessarily buying and selling. It's not about dumping all the high carbon companies out of your portfolio or saying, for instance, I don't know, you won't invest in an oil and gas company or whatever. A lot of it, what is about working with the management and with the boards of these companies, engagement, as you say, to try and what sort of encourage them to cut their emissions, to set strategies that will cut emissions? Is that how it works? Yeah, I'd say I'd say yes and no. Right? I mean, ultimately, it's it is on that very core concept of focusing on the transition. So I, I think you made a really good point that sometimes gets lost when you think about ESG or climate change focused strategies. Where I mean, the bulk of the value in terms of emissions reductions will come with working with existing incumbents in legacy industries to reduce their emissions, and not necessarily just owning a bunch of low emissions names. And so you are encouraging them to do so. But you know, it also has to tie back to productivity or, or financial materiality. So in the cases where it's really prudent for a company to make these decisions, so for example, if you own a legacy oil and gas company, you may make the argument that you know the long-term prospects for holding a name like this are more difficult given that there's more likely that they'll be phased out in across the globe over the next 10, 20 years. You may push them to think about transitioning their business model. In other cases, that may not be the case. So that's why I said yes and no. So question... How much of an impact are you and 
other investors actually having on corporate strategy. I thought, as I said, that letter from the um, State Street CEO, I thought that was interesting. He had a, a quote in there. He said, while more companies are making net zero commitments, with over one-fifth of the world's 2,000 largest public companies having committed to meet a specific target, few have provided a clear roadmap to achieve those goals. So setting a target is one thing. Actually achieving it and even setting a path to achieving it is very different issue. Do you see what he's getting at with that point? I mean, do you agree that perhaps there's a lot of target setting without the real strategies being put in place to achieve them? I'd say that it's it's a fair statement, but I'd say the pace of travel is quite quick. So in terms of the engagements that we have, for example, over the last you know, call it six months. We've interacted with companies that maybe two years ago in their CSR reports have some loose or nebulous mention to emissions, and then you talk to them more recently, and they have uh, you know a detailed science-based target with an actual pathway to achieving those emissions reductions. So that's that's where some of these engagements can be really valuable. Is actually partnering with the companies to see where their pain points are and how they're actually going about changing their capital allocation plans. Um, and in terms of the actual impact, I mean, you could bucket it into a few different trends here in terms of you know enhancing your relationship with management and understanding corporate culture at these companies. We could also think about in terms of identifying investable markets. I mean, we recently had an engagement with a Fortune 500 company that is traditionally in legacy like defense markets, but they have a really growing and prospering sustainable solutions portfolio. It's a small percentage of their portfolio today, but over the next five or 10 years, it could grow quite rapidly. And you know, our recommendation to them was to lean into that and emphasize that to investors. I mean, like these projects are typically around sustainable aviation fuels, renewable diesel, uh, things of that nature. And so it's it's about working with management teams to see what their pain points are and where they're actually you know underutilizing or underemphasizing the transition needs. And further, I'd say like from a market standpoint, if you look at some of what's going on uh, in terms of shareholder proposals and votes, I mean, ISS put out some great data on uh, ESG like related activism. And so the number of ENS proposals this year was a record high. And a lot of those were uh, majority like say on climate proposals, which is basically a corporation trying to get shareholder approval to you know ritualize their, their emissions reductions plans. And so you're seeing these issues come out to the forefront a lot more and you know people being held accountable. Even if you look at some of the ESG activist campaigns, I know that you've spoken about engine number one and Exxon. I mean, some other ones are Third Point and Shell or Elliott SSE. These are becoming issues that are fundamental to a shareholder's you know, actual approach and demeanor towards companies. So I think we'll see more of it, not less. So I guess it may be difficult for you to talk about individual companies sometimes, but are there examples when you look? I mean, those examples are interesting. I think some of the ones you mentioned, Exxon, Shell, and so on, where I think you could argue perhaps that the results are still quite ambiguous, right? And we haven't really seen how those changes are going to play out. Other examples you could point to where you would say, hey, this is a company which has really changed significantly, is now making much stronger progress towards decarbonization because of engagement with shareholders? The, the oil and gas examples that we're using are typically like transitioning the entire business model. But I, I would maybe point to some like heavy emitters that actually are doing a good job of managing their decarbonization profile. So for example, like a company like Waste Management, they're in the business of collecting and disposing waste uh, as well as recycling. Uh, if you look at the business like that, like 90% of the emissions actually come from landfill emissions. And so that's a that's just the nature of the business model, right? But what they do is that they've actually found that they can create that into a revenue opportunity by capturing that landfill gas and selling it back to utilities. That's a company where if you actually look at the last like 
five to 10 years, they've done a really good job of bringing down their emissions intensity per dollar of landfill revenue. And then the other major source of emissions for them is their collection fleet. And so they've done a lot of progress in terms of using natural gas or renewable natural gas from that captured landfill gas. So I think there's opportunities for companies where, you know, traditionally, if you just look at it from a raw number standpoint, might be a high emitter, but how they actually manage that emissions profile down and how are they creating opportunities as a result of them are really important. So I, I don't know if that answers your question, but that's an example of a heavy emitter that may not be intuitive, but, you know, we actually think is doing a good job. Yeah, no, actually, I think that's a really interesting example. And as you say, that is a uh a very striking story of how a company is is really changing and managing its emissions profile as a result of that engagement. So Amy, this is something that you used to do, right? In a previous incarnation, you were also involved in acting as a shareholder. What was your role? You, you, were, you did this for the University of California, right? Yeah. So I was a business professor at uh, University of California, Davis, and the business school secunded me to the chief investment officer of the UC, which is a major pension and endowment fund, one of the largest in the United States. And the mission was to uh, advise on how to create a sustainable investing framework. And I think, you know, one of the big takeaways that I had from doing that, I think is one of the most impactful things I've ever done, was a lot of times people make these very binary, you're divesting from fossil fuels or you're not divesting from fossil fuels, and that's all a sustainability officer or advisor in a pension fund does. But actually, this was a much broader effort. The CIO, Jagdeep Basher, was very forward-looking, and he understood that it was really a across-the-board philosophy. So I worked with him to think about systems we could put in place, not just for screening public equities, which a lot of people do, but thinking about your investments of what we call real assets, where you're going out and and co-investing or working with a private equity firm to buy things in the real economy, uh, energy projects, or uh, real estate. And those things, you're going to hold those investments for a long period of time. You want to make sure that they are not at a high climate or ESG risk. Agriculture investments, And then we looked at the bond markets. You know, one of the big decisions we made when I was at the UC with input from my new system was that the UC was holding bonds in the US coal companies. And as professionals, we had a professional analyst and we determination was made that those companies had a high risk of bankruptcy and we got out of those investments. And everybody was like, oh, you're pandering to the students. And we're like, this was not a pandering to students thing. This is public information. There was $300 million on the line that we didn't lose because we got out of those bonds before the companies declared bankruptcy. So it was across the whole portfolio. And I think one of the most impactful things that the UC did was really to, uh, as Shana was mentioning, be a lead institutional investor in sponsoring shareholder resolutions for companies where we felt the management was not taking climate risk seriously. And also we engaged our asset managers. So when you look at something that we now take for granted that a Blackstone or a Fidelity is taking ESG very seriously, I can tell you when I first was at the UC, people kept telling me, well, this is not really serious. It's like, you know, it, you, you, can't, you have to, you have fiduciary duty, you have to focus on what's going to make money. And I was like, listen, this is, this is about risk. It's not any different than currency risk. 
or, or other sovereign risks that we all know to analyze. It's an important risk that has to be considered, and we can now see what happened in the markets to people who didn't take those risks into account. And can you point to real success stories, do you think? I mean, so the coal example is interesting. That's about divestment and saying we shouldn't have exposure to coal bonds, sell those. What about engaging with companies? Are there times where you had conversations with the board's management of companies, or as you say, where you backed resolutions where you really think that a company changed direction and shifted towards faster decarbonization because of the engagement they had with you or with others? Let me say it's always, as Shana has already pointed out, it's always a group, right? But there were important engagements. I mean, of course, the most important engagement, in my opinion, was at the time, you know, we all forget, these companies were refusing to do scenario analysis about climate risk. And so the first level of engagement was literally just to get companies to accept the fact that they needed to assess climate risk. I mean, I remember having an interaction with several companies at Davos where they're trying to like, you know, talk me out of this idea. But when companies took it seriously, they made really key decisions. ConocoPhillips was the first company to sell its oil sands and they got top dollar People who got out of oil sands later, like at ExxonMobil, it was literally a write-down. Uh, you know, they got zero. So, and, and in terms of, uh, you know, what we used to call Stadol, switched its name to Equinor, they were very quick to position themselves in offshore wind, uh, which I think will pay off to investors over time. Um, and, and all of those things came from doing the scenario analysis, engaging with pension funds, And, you know, we think about, you know, Bill Gates being such a leader now with Breakthrough Energy. That that came from engagement from Microsoft. You know, the big tech companies are dependent on data centers and they are energy hogs. And if that energy was going to come from coal, you know, big problem. And so, you know, it's not just engaging the fossil fuel companies. It was really, you know, across the economies. And we looked at things other than climate change as well, we looked at things like labor practices and, and, and so forth, engaging the banks on diversity. And so it was really, I think, an important role for investors to take. And it's especially important because, you know, you're talking about pension money. And if you're just going to lose that money because you're just going to trust someone who says, well, you know, climate change isn't going to be important for 50 years. And then, you know, you have some thing that completely knocks out, you know, the oil sands, for example. There were a lot of bankruptcies in oil sands. People owned a lot of those companies. They lost that money. But even physical risk sometimes is important if you're owning, say, for example, it's hard to believe that people didn't sell shares in PG&E at first, right? After it was come clear how big a problem wildfires was going to be in California, people did not bail out on that stock. And then again, they lost everything. So it's really, you know, an important area for an investor, especially a big investor like the UC. If if I may actually just add one more additional point, as we've only really looked at it from the perspective of investors, I'd say a lot of our engagement meetings as well have been at the behest of companies and asking for actual feedback on how investors are evaluating these issues and how they stack up against their peers. Uh, you know, I think sometimes we forget that these topics are relatively nascent or new to even some of the companies or their management teams. And so I think these engagements are, are helpful in the sense of setting 
a baseline for what we think is reasonable and what we think is leading and then pushing companies to, towards doing that. I think everything you said is really interesting. And hear what you say, and clearly it's enormously important and it's a really influential force in corporate life right now, in business, in the economy in general. I have a problem with it though, which is, as you say, the reason why investors are interested in climate, interested in the energy transition, it's not for altruistic reasons, not because they want to save the planet or they've got some kind of mission. It's because they believe that it's the best way to maximize returns long-term for the people whose money they're looking after. You have to worry about climate risk because it's a material risk to the business. And if you don't worry about it, then the retirement funds and the people with their life insurance and whoever else it is that has trusted you with your money, they're going to lose money. But if you look at what's happening to stock markets and share prices, um, obviously there's a tremendous amount of volatility and noise in it. And you know you can cut these things in different ways to get different results. But if you were to cut it, say, over the past year, you can see that share prices of you know, wind power companies, share price of Vestas down about 40% over the past year, share price of Ersted, the um, offshore wind generation company used to be an oil and gas, got out of that, is now in wind, their share price is down 40%. Share prices of the oil and gas companies, you know, Chevron and Exxon Mobil are up kind of 70, 80% over that same period, largely, of course, driven by that big run up in oil and gas prices that we've had over the past year. So how do you reconcile that? I mean, it's something I hear people say in the industry as well, say, well, hey, look, these investors come along and people like you, Sean, I mean, you kind of talk to us and you say, well, you know, it's uh, very important to worry about climate risk and you've got to think about decarbonization and this is very important for the long-term outlook for the company, but they don't always get rewarded for that. And on the kind of the periods of time that where they care about, kind of year to year maybe, the efforts to decarbonize don't get reflected in a higher share price. So, how do you deal with that? I mean, how do you explain that to people? And what is the way that you can kind of reconcile these two things to say, I mean, you still think it's worth it for the long term, but in the short term, there's going to be some problems, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think you you hit it on the head in terms of it, it ultimately comes down to your time horizon. And so, yeah, if you look at the last year or so, or predominantly year to date, it hasn't been great for for clean energy or, or climate tech companies, however you to define that. Um, but that ultimately, I mean, I guess if you want to just take that a longer term time horizon, you may get to a different outcome, right? So you brought up oil and gas and you know this relative pocket of volatility where some of these energy companies are outperforming the broader market. Uh, I mean, look at what share prices did from 2010 to 2020, right? Like it was the opposite way where there's a lot of capital destruction and share prices were underperforming. So I think one thing that you hit on that folks need to come to grips with is that there were probably likely be more pockets of volatility where you have traditional energy markets outperform but I guess the core hypothesis is that over the long term, you know, that integrating climate and sustainability will lead to outperformance. And so you need a longer time horizon. So I think part of that is just forcing a traditional financial market time period on a trend that's more multi-year by nature. So I think that's a little bit challenging. But also it goes to the point too, in terms of value capture, which I think is very much the question that remains to be seen in public markets. So I mean, at year end 2021, the S&P Clean Energy Index actually had a higher forward 
price to earnings multiple PDE, which investors use than the traditional index, which means that they were given more forward credit for every dollar of earnings. So by that virtue, I mean, I think you're saying that investors are trying to give forward credit or, or you know momentum to these companies, but they do need to grow into that, right? Just because a secular tailwind exists and means that it's good for a market doesn't necessarily mean that every company inside that market will do well. And I'll give you an example. So for example, it, I, it'd be really hard to find someone that's bearish on long-term installations of US or sorry, uh, global utility sales solar. But if you look at solar companies and the companies across the value chain, it's a relatively commoditized business. You're operating on pretty thin margins uh, and competition is really, really brutal and customers are really selecting on price. So may, you may not necessarily want to play it in, a, in the angle of pure play uh, solar companies, right? You might want to invest in like a picks and shovels type model or someone that can benefit as a result of selling equipment into those industries, but may not necessarily sell that same end product. So like, I, for example, I would also point to like EVs, for example, a lot of the attention goes to the share prices of the automotive OEMs. But you know, there's multiple ways to play that trend. Like you could invest in the providers of the actual cables or electrical system and components that go into the EVs, or perhaps like people that are providing the anti-corrosive paint or binder or things of that nature. And I think those don't always get caught in the headlines, as you mentioned, because the focus is on the pure play companies. But I'd say the universe is much bigger than that. And there's multiple ways to, to view that performance. So I want to talk about another aspect of this same tension. You've been talking a lot about how investors can push companies towards taking more action on climate, moving faster towards decarbonization. There have also been times when investors have tried to hold companies back and objected to the pace at which companies are addressing climate. Interesting example currently with Unilever, the UK-based consumer goods group. It's clearly a global leader in sustainability. If you take a look at the planet and society section of their website. It's enormously impressive. It says, I took down the quote here, it says, we're a company of brands and people with a big purpose to make sustainable living commonplace. We want to push our business and the way business is done further than ever before. So a lot of talk about the big purpose, climate decarbonization, definitely part of that. But shares have not been performing brilliantly, and it's attracted an investment from the activist investor, Nelson Peltz, who wants to shape the company up to improve its performance. And one of the ideas that's been flying around, I don't think Nelson Peltz himself has particularly talked about this, but certainly this is something that other people have talked about, is saying, well, hey, look, this company is so focused on being a great champion for sustainability, it's not been focusing enough on what it should be focusing on, which is getting the core business right and maximizing profitability. So I'm interested in your thoughts on these kind of situations, and perhaps particularly for company like Unilever, which is very consumer-facing, has a lot of great consumer brands in the portfolio. And Shana, when you think about this, when you think about these companies, probably people don't think about climate and energy initially when they think about sustainability for those companies. But are they significant? And are they, they companies that you think about in terms of the energy transition and decarbonization? Yes, I, I do. And I think uh, the consumer is a really interesting one because it's it's a sector where you have a unique relationship with, with the consumer in terms of you're interacting with these brands every day, you have a personal relationship, and there's this concept of perceived brand value that can be directly correlated to you know how sustainable a company thinks that they'll be. Let me give you just a quick few stats that on the state of the consumer and how they're thinking about sustainability. A recent Accenture survey said that 74% of consumers uh, believe ethical corporate practices and 
values are an important reason in choosing a brand. And 66 said they plan to make a more sustainable or ethical purchase in the next six months. And then separately, the NYU CERN Sustainable Market Share Index observed that from 2015 to 2019, sustainability marked products delivered on average 7.1 times faster growth. And in 90% of individual product categories, the more sustainable marked products outsold their their peers. So the reason I share those is because when you're thinking about a consumer-facing company or products that sell directly to these consumers, if your consumers are voting with their dollars as the data would suggest they are, then it has to be incorporated into your overall corporate strategy. So I mean, in your example with Unilever, I mean, I can't speak exactly to that company's business model, but I mean, I do know that some of the fastest growing parts of their portfolio are related to sustainability-focused tailwinds. Whether management has properly managed that in, in accordance with other growth objectives is maybe something that Nelson and some of the other investors are, are going into. But managing these issues is core to your relationship with the customer. In terms of emissions and decarbonization, I think consumer companies are really interesting because they touch on nearly all sources of emissions or types of emissions. So if you include the full supply chain, right, consumer companies have exposure to agricultural ingredients. They have exposure to virgin materials that convert into packaging. You have the actual operating and manufacturing facilities across the globe. You have transportation networks to get raw materials to their facilities and then eventually to the consumers. And then you also have the concept of the actual use of the product as well as end of life treatment by the consumer. So for some of these consumer companies, actually, you'd be surprised that a big source of emissions are from actual use of products. So if you need hot water for your laundry detergent or your dishwasher, and you don't have a fully electrified or clean energy provided you know, water heater, that factors into that company's emissions. So I think with all these different endpoints, you see some of these consumer companies have to tackle with multiple sources of emissions versus some other sectors where you're predominantly focused on maybe just your energy sources or something of that else of that nature. Okay. So I can see that. And as you say, those survey results you quote are really interesting. If consumers want to spend more on more sustainable products, then great. And in that sense, good sustainability practice is good business. I wonder, do the dollars actually match the answers to surveys? You know, it feels like maybe a kind of thing where it's very easy and costless for people to say, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm really uh, keen on sustainable products and I would definitely buy those. If there's a price premium involved, presumably uh, people might be uh, more reluctant. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a fair point. And, and we've actually run into that. So we we, ha- we had an engagement with a Fortune 100 retailer, and he actually quoted some of the survey data suggesting that everyone likes to answer those surveys, uh, saying that they are more environmentally conscious. But then when you get to a shelf and the only difference is price and some sustainability label that you don't recognize, you may not be as likely to purchase that product. I think that's true. But that's also why I quoted the NYU CERN data, which is actually based on product sales. So that is some hard data that drives that. But I guess how it manifests at individual companies that's a little bit more dependent on the specific company or product in question. One example where I'd actually say that you saw some success in reducing emissions that were aligned with sales was for some of the laundry detergent companies, so like P&G or, or Unilever for that matter, they had a huge consumer education campaign around using cold water during your uh, wash cycles instead of hot water. And then they've estimated that that's saved up to you know 20 million tons over the last few years in terms of avoided emissions. So that's an example where like you're driving customers to a particular decision. There may not be as big of a price premium as you're suggesting. And then that actually led to avoided emissions. It's going to be dependent on the product use case and type. But ultimately, I don't necessarily think it's a fair assumption to assume that they'll always be more expensive and or consumers will only always vote about dollars. So Amy, how do you think about this? How do you think about the significance of these 
consumer facing companies in terms of the energy transition? You know, I, I think it's a very important point uh, that Chano's already made, but it, it carries itself over. If you've got a big company that has a lot of inputs to its manufacturing, you know, take a car company or or some other kind of durable good, they're now going to go back across. If they've made, if their chairman and, and C-suite has made a net zero commitment as part of the kind of movements we're seeing, they now have actually committed to going back across their entire supply chain and having those suppliers, whether it's the widget or the you know input material or the agricultural material, have those suppliers also commit to net zero. And so it's really like a building block. So, you know, Shana was saying, hey, listen, you want to make uh, in solar, you know, maybe the margins are better for the equipment suppliers, EV charging equipment suppliers and other kind of these areas, you know, there's going to be a lot of pressure uh, on those supplier companies from the institutions that are going to be using their equipment to also make a net zero pledge. And just to give you some statistics uh, top of mind, you know, we, we, again, we all get focused on, you know, the coal industry um, when we're, you know, thinking about uh, decarbonization, but recent study on the global food chain. So that's everything. That's the processing. It's not just the growing of food. It's the manufacturing and processing of food. It's the transportation of food. It's the disposal of food waste, which Shano already mentioned, landfill and other kinds of sources that are very methane intensive. So shocking fact, over a third of our emissions today for greenhouse gas is linked to the global food chain. That is amazing. We were talking to Melissa Lott on an episode just recently about a company she knows which is launching lower carbon beef, and they've got various ways of changing the production process, the way they manage the cattle and so on, to reduce emissions, and they're going to be able to brand it, they say, as lower carbon. But still, I mean, I was saying to her at the time, lower carbon is being a very different thing from being low carbon. Beef is still very, very carbon intensive, isn't it? EPC Power manufactures self-developed energy storage smart inverters made in their American factories with gigawatt-level capacity. These inverters have industry-leading response time, advanced control features, and grid-forming capabilities. EPC is headquartered in San Diego County, California. To support growing global demand, they recently opened an engineering and sales branch in Helsinki, Finland, and are launching an East Coast factory this year. EPC Power is expanding its presence as the largest US grid-scale inverter manufacturer, delivering over a gigawatt of energy storage inverters to date, and over two gigawatts by the end of this year. Visit www.epcpower.com energygang to learn more about their utility-scale and CNI product lines, and schedule a call to learn how they can help you power your energy storage projects. EPC Power. Excellence in power conversion. So I want to talk now about another aspect of climate risk, which is the question of what it means for city and regional and national finances. Last month, there was a really eye-opening story, I thought, out of Indonesia, which is that the country's parliament has voted to move its capital away from Jakarta, which has been the capital since the country gained independence at the end of 1949, and moving to a new site uh, many hundreds of miles away. The reason is that Jakarta is sinking into the sea. The land is subsiding. They're facing an ever-worsening problem of flooding, costs 
estimated $500 million a year, expected to rise to four or five times that by 2050. Climate change, absolutely not the only reason why the city's in trouble, but definitely a rising sea level is part of the problem, and it's getting worse. So losing being the capital is a huge change for a city, big city, 10 million people live there. And it seems like a really powerful reminder of the threat that climate change can pose to the economy of a city or of a region or of an entire country and raises the question, I think, of what that means for investors when investors think about buying the bonds from these cities and regions and countries, whether they're taking these risks on board sufficiently and how they might change their practices as some of these climate risks grow. Amy, I wanted to come to you first on this. You have been looking at exactly this issue, right? You've got a research project underway at the moment on flood risk in cities. That's correct? So Climate Policy Lab at the Fletcher School at Tufts, we're working on the question of resilience strategies for major cities. We're focused primarily on Africa and, believe it or not, the United States, which I'll talk about in a second. But uh, there's a lot of gaps. There's gaps in, in knowledge. There's gaps in strategy. So one of the big challenges, frankly, that cities are facing beyond just the physical, do they have a seawall or do they have a water you know, extraction plan for flooding, is cities are not prepared for hosting the number of displaced people that happen in these you know, catastrophe events or even just from events like drought um, that just causes a migration of people or heat wave that can cause a migration of people. So we're, we're looking at one big problem that we're finding in cities, which is the housing problem, especially in Africa, where you have these informal settlements where people are sort of setting up just makeshift housing. And of course, they're setting it up on the banks of rivers or near a landfill and other parts of uh, cities that are undesirable. And of course, that's meaning that they're even more at risk to a future uh, flooding and climate activity. So, you know, the question is, how do we achieve helping that not overwhelm the finances of cities? And how can cities better be prepared as like host uh, for dislocation? So take the case of Africa, you're seeing more consideration about adaptation finance. Is there going to be aid coming from the West? Will climate commitments, you know, the climate club commitments come where you're going to see blended finance where you have some government uh, grants from the West to important countries to help their cities and for the adaptation uh, finance. And then you're hoping that the private sector will also join. But even in the United States, I mean, people don't realize these sudden events are displacing about a million people a year in the United States alone. And then the thing we have no idea on, both in places like Africa and elsewhere, but even in the United States, there's something that we in the business of academic research call slow onset impact. So we're not talking about, you know, a giant flood that happened from a hurricane or from a, a landslide that happened from, you know, flooding in an inland city that's mountainous. We're talking about the slow tick of sea level rise in a city or heat index going up in a city. And the pressure, either people are moving or we need to have a plan for cooling centers, for heating centers. And in the United States, for example, 
there is literally no agency. We think of FEMA, but FEMA is really focused on property. And we're talking about a problem that has a human dimension. That is really about, I mean, a lot of the people who are getting dislocated don't own any property, so there's no mechanism for FEMA to help them. And, they, they, and they're not involved in relocation of populations from slow-onset problems. So we really need to get reorganized both on the international level um, and even in the United States. So, Shani, from an investor point of view, how are investors thinking about these kind of risks? Yeah, ultimately, I mean, so I, I don't invest at a sovereign level, but I think a lot of the process is pretty similar in terms of factoring some of these risks. And I think it goes to show you how many different ways climate can impact the overall environment in which a country or a company exists. And so in this case, right, I mean, we're talking about displacement of a lot of people, and that's your working you know, your working force uh, right there, as well as your taxpayers. You also have the structural disruption to the overall market in terms of changing the demands for goods and services, as well as the supply of them, which can result in inflation. Um, and then ultimately, also, you, you have some lo- certain levels of political risk, right, due to resource scarcity. So I think as an investor, you need to start weighing those considerations as these issues become more profound. Um, and you need to underwrite that risk. So it's either you're going to be requiring a higher rate of return, or you may not invest in the first place. Um, so I think that those are some of the interesting issues that investors have to grapple with when you're investing at this type of level. I think the other point uh, that Amy spoke to was financing mitigation versus adaptation. And so at least from what I've seen, so some of the more uh, instruments used from a financing standpoint include sustainability-linked bonds, where the, you know the interest rate or a covenant of the debt instrument may fluctuate based on the achievement of an environmental KPI. So for example, when you have like a mitigation-based solution like installing solar panels, you can measure some pretty easy KPIs in terms of the amount of generation from that solar panel, how much avoided emissions you have versus burning fossil fuels, um, and actually measure the total generation. Adaptation is a little bit harder to quantify, right? So if I install a seawall or something that improves water quality, I have you know productivity gains or you know less damage at a global level but how do i actually measure that or put that into implementation and so i think amy might have opinions on this but it likely needs to be some sort of solution that is a blended finance model that you know traditional instruments aren't well suited to to deliver on because generally presumably there aren't really business models for that right there aren't companies out there that are saying we're going to put cooling centers in every city in a hot climate or as you say we're going to put up these seawalls or whatever, that's that's something really what which governments have to do, I would think. Well, you are seeing, you know, governments step up with some of this finance. And the question is, you know, how will markets respond? So one interesting thing we're seeing, you know, in the old days, sort of the voluntary offset market was specifically just carbon. But now we're starting to see that market evolve where other kinds of achievements, whether that's a biodiversity plus or a adaptation aspect, right? You know, you can have a, a, a double, you know, big bang for your buck if you're putting in, you know, um, wetlands, you're restoring wetlands, and that's not only helping with flooding, but it's also restoring biodiversity and also becoming a carbon sink. That kind of project in the voluntary offsets market where companies are looking to start to stack these kind of uh, credits. Those projects that have an adaptation piece or a uh, sometimes in some markets a gender positive piece or a biodiversity positive piece are starting to get a bit of a premium over just the straightforward offset for either 
mitigation or eventually for you know carbon removal. So we're starting to see sort of a tiered market. Um, and then again, when I bring it down to the investment level, you know, if I'm investing in a company or a bank, you know, I probably want to know, you know, what kind of positions do they have in the offset markets and uh, how well are they uh, set up if those markets become, you know, at the UN, there's discussion about making those formal markets and no longer voluntary markets. And, you know, I want to know how well is my bank positioned and how well are the companies that are in my portfolio positioned to tap these opportunities to get uh, offset credits and use them or resell them. So this actually is an area where private finance could be directed towards some of these adaptation type measures. Is that right? I mean, China, do you see opportunities there? And when you talk to companies that are thinking about sustainability goals, do some of these credits that Amy's been talking about, could they play a role there? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's an important point. So for example, we talked to a Fortune 500 consultancy where, you know, if you look at consulting type business, right, you're leasing most of your office space across the world and you're still really reliant on air travel, which I know that in prior episodes of the Energy Gang, you've covered the difficulty in decarbonizing aviation. Um, but companies like that are going to be reliant on offsets to quote unquote, you know, reach net zero, at least in the interim until you have technologies at commercial scale to fully decarbonize to zero emissions. So when we talk to that consultancy, you know, they spent, they've spent quite about a, amount of time and resources on vetting out the quality of carbon credits and have, making sure that they have interesting co-benefits, to Amy's point, that are adaptation focused. And so I do think you're going to see a vacuum here because there's not every company has a viable pathway to zero emissions today. And the companies that do participate in the voluntary carbon markets as scrutiny comes down on, on those types of offsets and the quality of them and the co-benefits, you're going to see more and more companies move upstream to try finding these interesting offsets that have multiple benefits and actually you know, implement more than just the pure offset nature of the credit in the first place. And I think that question of carbon markets and how they're evolving is a really fascinating one and one we should definitely come back to and, and discuss further on another edition of the Energy Gang. Unfortunately, we're just about uh, going to have to wrap it up now. Just wanted to do our usual thing of our free electrons. If you've got things that have struck you as kind of interesting or possibly even amusing in the world of energy over the past couple of weeks, uh, Amy, what's yours? Well, you know, mine is after spending years studying how to help the world's poor move away from biomass energy. Um, here in Texas, uh, people were stockpiling wood. Uh, ahead of the anticipation of a cold winter February, uh, fearing that their heat and electricity would go out. And indeed, across the entire United States in December, firewood prices were up 34%. Um, and I, of one of the consumers, because over uh, the blizzard that we had in New England a week or so ago, uh, I inaugurated my, uh, my fireplace with, uh, with some logs. And it was very, you know, rustic and whatever. But, you know, really, as an energy expert, I really don't like this idea that we're going backwards, that our, we're so unable to provide modern, resilient uh, electricity systems uh, that people are literally back to wood. Um, so I, I really do think policymakers, especially in Texas, but also across the United States, really need to think about as we start implementing the infrastructure spend uh, that the Congress has approved, you know, how do we build resilience in um, and firewood out? 
That's a great point. And that is obviously uh, a lot of people like a real wood fire, but that's a great campaign, which is stop burning wood. We need to be able to stop burning wood. That would be um, a great banner to flander. So, Shana, what's yours? Yeah, I've sp- I've been spending a lot more time recently in, in material science to try to read more about interesting ways people are coming up with to turn materials into usable products. And I recently came across this article that was published uh, where it says, MIT chemical engineers have created a new material that is stronger than steel and is light as plastic and can be easily manufactured in large quantities. And basically what the researchers researchers were able to do was they were able to induce these polymers, which are kind of the building blocks of plastics, to grow in a two-dimensional sheet, which that can later be constructed to be all these various different types of products that have these incredible physical characteristics that make them, you know, arguably as strong as steel or as like dense as bulletproof glass. And I think that's really exciting because when you think about the future of how we make products or, you know, the ability to make them in different ways, uh, you know, that has a ton, a ton of use use cases. So for example, the researcher here said it could be used as durable coating for car parts or cell phones or even building material for bridges and other structures. And um, that, that gets me really excited. And my eyes kind of open up when I hear about people working on incredible things like that. So I found that one really fascinating. That is really cool. Yeah. And certainly we do need uh, new materials. It'd be a huge help in decarbonization to be able to things that we can't do with the materials we've got at the moment. So yeah, that is definitely an exciting development. So my uh, free electron is the proposed reform of net metering in California. I don't know if you've been following this story where California at the moment has a very, very generous net metering system for uh, homeowners and people who've installed rooftop distributed solar. Um, Basically, the regulators think it's too generous. They're going to shake it up. They've proposed a new system, which would be basically much less generous. And we've done some calculations with Mackenzie. Uh, the payback time for a solar system would go from about five to six years, which is what what it is at the moment, to think about uh, 13 or 14 years. So economics of having solar on your roof would look a lot worse. And it's just been interesting to watch the way that this has divided the environmental movement. And you've had people who are big advocates for solar. Some of the Hollywood stars have come out. Arnold Schwarzenegger came out, Edward Norton, Mark Ruffalo, I noticed was tweeting about it the other day, um, basically attacking this uh, proposal and saying that we need to keep the regulatory system very generous for distributed solar in order to encourage investment. And some environmental groups saying, well, hang on a minute, actually, uh, maybe these proposals aren't so terrible. And you have to accept that the system that has existed until now, by being so generous to people with distributed solar tends to favor people on higher incomes who've got property where they can where they've got the space to put panels up people who can get the financing and so on and that is essentially unfair and that if you want your system of regulation and support for renewable energy to be sustainable in every sense and sustainable in the sense of being able to survive for the long term you have to make it fairer so Although it is clearly the reform is bad news for rooftop solar, despite that, some of the environmental campaigners have not been completely opposed to it. My sense of it's not been finally decided yet. My sense of it is that it'll uh, come out with some kind of a compromise and that the system will probably be less generous than it is at the moment, but not quite as ungenerous 
as the latest set of proposals that they've been talking about. But still, I think it's a really interesting issue. And obviously, it's one that a lot of other states and a lot of other places that are subsidizing renewable energy are having to face, which is, it's not just a question of climate and decarbonization at the fastest pace possible. It's also a question about equity and decarbonizing in sustainable ways. So unfortunately, we do have to leave it there. Thank you very much, Amy, for coming in. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Shanu. Thank you, Ed. I hope we'll see you both again soon. That was a fascinating discussion. Thanks very much indeed for that. And thank you very much for listening. Please do let us know what you think. Give us your comments, suggestions, ideas for subjects we ought to be covering. We're on Twitter at, at The Energy Gang, and I'm at Ed underscore Crooks. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks with all the latest news and views on what's next for the energy transition. Until then, goodbye.